Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is musician, author, and music industry blogger Ari Herstand. But first, vinyl had a very big week last week. How big? Well, it was second only to Record Store Day that happened in April. Last week, 544,000 copies of vinyl albums were sold. There was more in April. That was 827,000. But if you compare it to last year, it was up by quite a bit. Only 355,000 were sold. So, in fact, things are going very well on the vinyl side of the business. But you might ask the question, why did this happen? Well, it's all due to a very big sales promotion by Target and Walmart. They discounted their vinyl records to $15. And as a result, they had a huge upswing in sales. Just to show you how much, in any given week, 6 to 15% of all vinyl records are sold through the big box stores, which include Target and Walmart. Usually most of the sales come from Amazon and indie record stores, but last week 42% came from the mega stores, especially Target and Walmart. So now it looks like things are price sensitive here in the vinyl business. This is bound to happen. At some point in time, people would say, well, you know what? I don't know that I want to pay $20 for that, but you know what? At 15, it's a bargain. So you might want to know, what were the top five albums sold? I think you might be surprised. Number one was Billie Eilish, When We All Fall Asleep, Where Do We Go? Number two, The Beatles' Abbey Road. Number three, Guardians of the Galaxy, Awesome Mix, Volume 1. Number four, Queen's Greatest Hits. And number five, Prince Purple Rain. So the only brand new release in that top five was Billie Eilish. That's been kind of the theme of vinyl. The big sellers are the big hits, the legendary artists from the past, and one or two or three of the big sellers of today. Can't say if that's good or bad, but I'm glad that vinyl continues to sell. It looks like this will be a bang-up season for it, as a matter of fact, because those sales figures didn't include Black Friday, so we'll probably have another good week this week, and again, around Christmas. So again, vinyl business is still doing very well. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyowinnercircle.com. Don't forget about my online courses on mixing, production, branding, and music business success at bobbyosinskicourses.com. Also, get an expert analysis and objective opinion of your songs and mixes as a member of my Hitmakers Club. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. Now, another thing that happened just recently was that Dolby Labs and Warner Brothers struck a deal for Warner Brothers to supply releases in the Dolby Atmos immersive format. Now, Universal signed up with Dolby in May. So this is two out of the big three that have signed up for this. The big winner here is Amazon, because Amazon right now is the only streaming network that is streaming Dolby Atmos, and now they get a much bigger catalog out of it. If you're really into immersive audio, you can buy an Echo Studio, or you can go to Amazon Music HD, because other streaming music services just aren't interested so far. There hasn't been a lot of promotion on this, and I find it very interesting. And I mean on the Dolby Atmos format in general. Yes, you see it in the movies. Yes, you hear it in the movies, but nothing that has to do with music. This has been pretty quiet. And I think that there's a basic conundrum here in that you can't really promote it unless you experience it. Once you experience it, everyone pretty much goes, wow, this is really fantastic. But you can't tell somebody about it and really get the point across. So it should be interesting to see how this goes forward I think a lot of this depends on new products at CES coming up in January. If there are new products that lend themselves to immersive audio, I think that will go a long way into promoting the format. Otherwise, I'm not so sure what's actually going to happen. If this should fall by the wayside, I'd be very sad because it really does sound tremendous. But on the other hand, not everybody will be able to listen to it. And it might be one of those things that's just too esoteric 
for most people. My guest today is Ari Herstand, who parlayed his experiences as an indie artist into a secondary career as a music industry blogger and author. Ari's music business blog, Ari's Take, has been a staple for helping musicians build a career without the help of a record label. And his book, How to Make It in the New Music Business, is a recommended textbook in many college music programs. Ari's also written for many of the top music trade magazines and websites, including Music Connection, American Songwriter, Digital Music News, Playback Magazine, CD Baby, TuneCore, Reverb Nation, Hypebot, and many others. He's also been a featured speaker at South by Southwest, BBC One's Amplify, ASCAP Music Expo, SF Music Tech, CD Baby's DIY Musician Conference, and Berklee College of Music. During the interview, we spoke about some of the common misconceptions about the music business, the importance of setting goals, the big thing that most artists get wrong, finding an audience for your music, and much, much more. I spoke with Ari via Skype from his home in Los Angeles. I want to go back to the beginning with you, of you getting in the business. You started as a player before you started to write. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, I started my music career in Minneapolis um, I went to school there. I went to the University of Minnesota there as a, uh, actually as a classical trumpet major and a music education. I was going to be a, a high school band director someday. Um, and, uh, then I quickly realized that I didn't want to be a band director and I didn't want to play classical trumpets. So I, uh, kind of transferred to a music industry school, studied songwriting, music business, and then quickly, Kind of got in and out of there and started uh, performing around town and started um, kind of doing it um, in around the Twin Cities. And then you moved to L.A. What brought that on? Yeah, sure. So I um, I, I was in uh, Minneapolis for about seven years uh, doing the music thing. Um, and I was kind of uh, growing it, building it on my own. Um, it I kind of grew my, my operation as a singer-songwriter to the point where I was drawing about 800 people to my local shows in Minneapolis, and I was selling out venues kind of all around the Midwest. Um, so I, I really kind of built it up. I was doing uh, festivals around the Midwest. Uh, I was pulling, you know, I probably like maybe five states. I was I was pulling some really solid numbers. Um, I was doing some national tours, um, but I was really I had I had this solid foundation in the Midwest. Um, I felt like I had kind of reached my ceiling in Minneapolis. Um, it was, I, I felt kind of, um, I didn't really feel like a, uh, the challenge anymore. And there weren't a ton of singer songwriters that were doing what I was doing in town. And I was, I was looking to collaborate more, do some co-writing. And, uh, the first time I came out to LA, I remember it was, uh, it was January. Uh, and I left Minneapolis when it was blizzarding and negative 20 degrees. And I arrived in, in LA and it was 80 degrees and sunny. And I was just shocked and stunned and couldn't believe that this weather existed anywhere in America, um, in January. And then not, so, so that, um, definitely was a selling point, but it was also, um, that first trip here, I did a few songwriter nights and showcases and songwriter rounds. And I met so many other incredible singer songwriters. It was so inspiring. I'm like, this is what I'm looking for. I'm looking to collaborate and be amongst such a supportive, welcoming, uh, singer songwriter community. And so that, that kind of planted the seed and it took me another about, uh, I guess a year, year and a half after that until I made the move. I had the same experience. I came out here right before Thanksgiving and we had nine straight months of beautiful days. And I remember 75 degrees, spending it on the beach on Christmas and, and just thinking, yeah. <laughs> I'm not going back. Exactly. I mean, right. I, I, I just like, I couldn't believe that people chose to live in the tundra uh, when this existed here, but you know, I didn't have a say my parents, I was born into it. <laughs> my parents raised me there. And, but then once I discovered that this weather exists in LA, I'm like, yeah, not going back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. So tell me how you get into writing. Yeah. So, um, when I was, uh, in Minneapolis, um, I kind of, I, I built my career. I, I, let's step back. When I, when I went to this music industry school to study songwriting and music business, um, it, this was right around 2005. 
And I was taught all about the music business as it was. And, you know, we all the classes on music business was about uh, how to negotiate record label contracts and publishing deals and, um, you know, managers and all of that stuff. And so basically they taught me that uh, to, to have a music career, I had to get signed to a label. I needed a manager, all of that stuff, the traditional industry personnel. So as soon as I finished school, I was um, basically... I was waiting for this record deal and and a manager because they're like, well, you can't really have a real career in music unless you get assigned a record deal. So I, after a while, I'm like, well, I'm tired of waiting around. So I just want to play music and I want to start to build my career on my own and I don't want to wait for people. So I started to just kind of build it on my own and it got to a point where I not only was I selling out venues, I was getting songs placed on TV shows. I was charting on iTunes. I was I was making some significant waves where the musicians around me in Minneapolis initially. And then as I was touring colleges and high schools and festivals, um, a lot were kind of spread that um, I was kind of doing this on my own. And so if you had questions about the music business, uh, go ask Ari because he's kind of doing it and, and he gets back to you. And so that was the thing where people started sending me messages uh, from all over the country asking me just just basic questions. Um, oh, how'd you get that song and TV show? Or, oh, hey, you know, we have this this um, deal with this club. Is this a good deal? Or I can't get a response here. And I started to get the same questions over and over again from people. And, and as word spread, I started to get more and more questions. It got to a point where I just didn't have time to respond to everybody. Um, but I would, I really did want to share everything I was learning. And so, uh, my brother's a web developer and, and we kind of just like my, my good friends are graphic design artists. So it's like, you know what, let me just start a blog and put everything I'm learning and all the answers to all the questions that I'm getting up on the blog. So when someone asks me a question, I can just kind of point them there and to be like, Hey, like, Oh, I answered this over here. And so we did that. And inevitably more questions came in and I would, I would be like, Oh, okay. And I would write more about those things. And then anytime I learned anything in my own career, I wanted to write about it. And I wanted to share some of these like, Oh, I just got screwed over by this club. Let me tell you what I learned. Don't do this. Or I just made these mistakes. Don't make the same mistakes that I just made. Here's what I learned from that. So it started as being very personal. And, and then the blog kind of spread because at the time, um, it didn't seem like there were any working musicians that were kind of sharing the information in real time as they were learning it. And so I, I think, you know, people just started passing along Ari's take and spreading it. And then um, publications started to get in touch with me and asked me if I would uh, kind of contribute some articles. And so it, it kind of just grew, grew from there. Yeah, that's kind of what happened to me, too. I wrote for various magazines, oh, a dozen mm, first. Yeah. And then I wrote my first book because I was curious. I had holes in what I knew and I figured, well, if I want to know something, I bet there's a lot of other people as well. All of my books have been based on that, me learning something that I didn't know before. So it, it's based on the knowledge of people that are a whole lot smarter than me. <laughs> totally. Yeah. No, I, and absolutely. Like I, as, um, similarly, I, um, as my writing grew and I was kind of, um, as I was starting to write for these other publications, uh, what was the coolest thing about writing for like digital music news, for instance, was, uh, it gave me access to hit up anyone in the music industry, uh, and, and just sit down with them and ask them the questions that all these musicians have, but none of us really had access to, to talk to these people. So I, um, with my Ari at digital music news, email.com email, I was able to, literally hit up anyone I wanted and sit down with them for a story and for an article. And I learned so much and I really kind of took that responsibility. I, fe I felt like it was kind of my duty as this, as this artist, uh, to just get the answers that all the musicians have, but we just really didn't have the access to it. So I became kind of obsessed with learning and, and talking to as many people as I could and getting as much information from other people. Cause I'm like, you know, yeah, I'm learning some things from my own career, but it's just my own perspective and the things that I've learned, uh, they can be helpful to some, but I want to know so much more. I like, it's, it's just kind of, you know, going through my one perspective and, and just my, my own personal experiences. But then I started sourcing, I mean, literally hundreds of people I was talking to throughout the years, uh, just kind of learning how they were doing it from every corner of the industry, from 
artists and uh, managers to publicists and labels and booking agents and music supervisors and, and everyone. Okay, so what did you learn in talking to all those people that was different from the common perception? The most interesting thing um, I learned from from talking to people and just from my own career and um, is that there isn't just one way to make a music career happen. Uh, I, I, you know, when I was in school, that's what I was taught. And that's, I think, a common uh, misconception um, just from people outside of the industry, especially and, and parents and people who watch, you know, American Idol and The Voice and whatnot, is that there's only really one way to kind of make it make a music career happen. Uh, you know, in the old music business, it was, yeah, you, you got to get signed, you got to go on tour, you got to get, you know, sell a gazillion records. Um, but the more people I talked to, uh, especially managers and, and artists, um, the more interesting stories I was learning from people actually making a music career happen in such innovative, creative ways. And that was so inspiring to me because I was making a music career happen in my own way for me that didn't follow the traditional path. But that was just my own way. And that's how kind of I figured out how to make it work. But I was learning about all these other artists who were making it work for them in their own ways, which was so exciting to me because I'm like, wow, you're doing it in a unique way, uh, a way that's unique to you that I couldn't do because these are your strengths and these are not my strengths. And then I started seeing this over and over and over and over again from so many different musicians that were all succeeding with non-traditional style uh, music careers, but having very successful careers uh, in music as artists in just ways that were never really talked about. Um, and, and honestly, a lot of these ways didn't really exist five or 10 years ago, you know, utilizing various platforms online and services and all of that stuff. And so that that was so exciting to me. And so that was honestly one of the uh, things I was most excited to share in in my book was to pass along all these stories that just people weren't really talking about or telling. Now, one of the things that I always write in my social media book, especially social media promotion for musicians, is that I try to provide the approach where, look, your time is precious. You'd rather be making music than you would be doing a lot of this other stuff as we all would. Here's the way to be the most efficient about it. So, that's where I come from. That being said, do you find that all these various ways that people are, are approaching it, how labor intensive are they? Sure. So um, it, it varies, of course, based on their objectives, uh, their goals and the platforms they're using. So it all varies. But the thing is that I found from all the successful musicians um, that utilize a platform in a way that that can uh, actually generate revenue and, and enhance their careers is the ones that do it successfully are the ones who enjoy doing it. And so, you know, whenever uh, musicians kind of say, oh, well, what what social platforms should I be on and, and how should I operate on social media or or uh, what things should I do? I first say, um, I don't know, because it it all depends on what your goals and objectives are, but more so it also depends on what your strengths and weaknesses are. For instance, um, in LA, a lot of my friends are um, kind of YouTubers, Instagram musicians, that kind of stuff. Uh, a few years ago when the YouTube musician thing was a, was a, uh, a big thing, um, kind of, you know, 2011, I teamed up with a couple of YouTuber friends of mine and like, all right, let's do a collaboration video. And I'm like, man, YouTube is so hot right now. People are making careers happen on YouTube. Let me let me see what this is all about. So I teamed up with a couple of my YouTuber friends. We made uh, a video and I went through the whole process with them. They were guiding the process. They were the ones who had, you know, millions and millions of views and hundreds of thousands of subscribers and all that stuff. And we're like, this would be great for me. We teamed up, we did a collaboration video and I saw what it took for them. It was a full, it was like a full-time job. I mean, they, uh, we did a whole week, week's worth of stuff uh, by getting in the studio, recording the song, doing the video, editing the video, sourcing all the things we needed to do on and on, and then putting the video out. And they did that every week. And I'm like, I don't want to do that. That was not inspiring to me. I did a few of them. I'm like, this is not fun for me. I don't really like doing this. I don't really want to do this. Uh, I love performing and I've built my career doing, you know, touring and, and, forming and sync and all of that stuff. And the cool thing was, was they didn't want to tour or perform live. They loved doing the video thing. 
And so I'm like, wow, well, this is really interesting because uh, you love doing this. This works for you. You built an amazing career doing this. I love doing what I'm doing. I built a career doing what I'm doing. And we don't have to do it, either thing. They don't have to tour. Uh, they were making very good livings doing just the YouTube thing. And I don't have to do the YouTube thing. And so that was what was really cool um, is like, yeah, that was super labor intensive if you want to do that. And so I always tell musicians, you know, like, oh, people say I got to do YouTube or I got to be on Instagram. I'm like, well, not necessarily. Like, if you, you, first of, you have to understand who your target demographic is. If you're only targeting people who are 65 plus, you don't really need to be on Instagram or Snapchat. Um, but yeah, you probably want to understand your strengths and your weaknesses. If you're not good at social media, if you're just like, if, if you really hate doing, um, you know, for instance, like Instagram, little 60 second Instagram videos in front of the camera or something like that, then that's not where you should be focusing your efforts because if you hate doing it, you're not going to, it's not going to be sustainable. You don't want to keep doing it. Um, and that's, you don't have to do it. That's the thing. There's, that's the beautiful thing that I've learned from talking to so many artists out there is there are a hundred different ways to make a music career happen right now. And you kind of have to just focus on what kind of career you want to have, um, and what your strengths and weaknesses are and what your goals and objectives are. And then, then when you lay all these out, then you can structure a career in a way that really makes sense to you. Now, that being said, there's always a group of artists that don't want to go through any of that. Some of it is they don't have the capacity to do so. And the other part of it is, like you say, they're just not interested. So then it comes down to you need some management. You need some infrastructure that's going to take care of that. So we're back to the same thing that we've always been. We need some sort of management infrastructure in order to take care of a lot of those things that the artist doesn't want to. So finding the manager that's interested in, you know, again, back to the beginning, so to speak. Well, uh, yes and no. Um, I totally support the notion and that that uh, not every artist is completely capable at managing their entire business themselves. That's actually probably a very small part of the um, artist community that is able to handle it all on their own. On one hand, sure, I didn't have the traditional industry structure. I didn't have a manager or a label or a booking agent for a lot of it. Um, and similarly, a lot of the artists I talked to don't have the traditional industry structure. But I teamed up with just like a lot of other artists team up with people who are um, who want to help and you utilize their strengths and you find people that can make up for your weaknesses. So, for instance, like. I'm not a great graphic design artist um, and I'm not a good video editor, but I need graphic design done and I need video done. So did I do all that by myself? I mean, I did some of it. I, I know how to edit video, but I'm not great at it. So I outsourced and I found supporters who were like, oh, you're really good at, at uh, graphic design. So can you kind of help design these things? And and uh, wow, you're a great video editor and you know, you barter for things or they help you out or supporters. Uh, I had a, a street team of people helping me put up flyers and posters back in the day around Minneapolis that, you know, I didn't do that all by myself. You know, there was uh, people that were more connected than me or, or kind of worked at uh, worked on the um, college committees bringing music. And so they're like, hey, I can help you get some shows at schools. I'm like, great. That sounds good. And so it was it's kind of like friends helping friends. And yes, a lot of managers kind of start off as their friends and helping them out and everything like that. Um, but I, I never really had that traditional kind of manager thing. And, and to your point of some artists just don't want to do that kind of stuff. Um, I, I get it and that's okay. I think it's important for every artist to understand what needs to get done and then finding people that can help them achieve their goals. And so I, I always tell people, you know, the most important thing that you can do from the beginning is lay out your goals. And then you can reverse engineer those goals and understand how you can achieve those goals. Because the thing is, is that, you know, I, I think too many artists are like, I just need a manager. And I'm like, why do you need a manager? We're like, well, I just need a manager for my career. I'm like, yes, but what is your real goal? What's your ultimate goal? Your ultimate goal is like, oh, well, I, I want to go on this tour and I want to open for this artist. I'm like, OK, so your goal is not get a manager. Your goal is you want to go on this tour and you want to open for this artist. So let's let's talk about that. OK, so pick that artist. You say you want to open for this artist. All right. So is this artist does this artist have a tour planned? OK, let's check it out. Do they have an opener announced? Who's their manager? Who's their representation? 
okay, let's get their emails. Let's talk about how we can get in touch with them. So it's once you, once you really break it down, I think people, artists use the crutches of, I just need representation and that'll solve all my problems. That's inaccurate. You really need to lay out what your real goals are. And people are like, well, if I had a manager, I could get songs on TV shows and you could pay me some money. I'm like, all right. So your real goal is you want to get a song on a TV show. Okay. Which TV show? And now who's the music supervisor for that show? How do we get in touch with them? You know, and then you learn about what kind of files do they want to have? What kind of email pitches do they want? What, you know, so there's all these different steps. And yes, these are a lot of jobs that if you do have representation, managers can do a lot of this stuff. But at the same time, artists can do a lot of this stuff as well, or their friends can do it. And so I think the, the thing is, is like I learned the hard way. Uh, yeah, early on in my career, every year, my goal was to get a manager. I didn't, I was just like, I just, I really need a manager. And then after a while, I'm like, I, I wasn't sitting around waiting for one. I was making shit happen. So I'm like, after a while, I'm like, wow, I have a more successful music career right now than many of my friends who have managers. And, uh, and I don't have a manager. Now I know I'm unique in the sense that I'm, I can handle a lot of the business on my own. And I see a lot of my friends that struggle with that stuff as well. And so I absolutely, um, understand that there is a place for managers in the industry and that they can be incredibly valuable. But the other issue is, is that a lot of artists, uh, don't, have managers, don't know where to find them. And there are no managers that really are interested in representing them right now because they don't have a business to represent. And so until you have a business uh, that you can pay your manager a commission, it's going to be a really hard time to just find a, a manager that's going to solve all your problems and, and like make your career happen for you. So you really have to get your career to a level, a point first and whether that's going to be with a traditional infrastructure or you're going to just find friends and source friends and, and favors, ask for favors from friends. But I think every artist, regardless of how capable they are at the business, can can set aside, can set up goals for themselves on what they would like to achieve with their career. And then they can source some help on, on achieving those goals. Ari, what's the one big thing that most artists get wrong Let's see. The biggest thing that that artists get wrong is that uh, kind of playing off of uh, what I was just talking about. I think a big thing is that um, they need the traditional formal industry support to have a successful career. Um, I have seen this disproven over and over again, um, hundreds of times over. So uh, I would say that's probably the biggest thing is that you don't need um, uh, traditional industry support to have a successful music career. And, and the other thing is that a lot of uh, musicians, I would say maybe one of they get wrong or, or one of the biggest mistakes that a lot of young artists make is, uh, kind of on the complete opposite end of what we were talking about is that the artists that are actually very good at their business, uh, they, they work on the business before their music is ready. And so I think it's a blessing and a curse that the industry right now is so open and that there aren't many gatekeepers. Everyone, um, everyone can uh, get their music on Spotify, whether, uh, you know, you're Beyonce or whether you're, um, you know, me or, or whether you're in a dorm room uh, and you just picked up a guitar last week. It's all the same platform. The It's all, you, you know, you don't need to convince the record store to put your record in there and to buy it or to sell it for you. Um, and so that that kind of convinces some musicians that uh, they are ready and they can do it when they're not ready. And so I think, you know, that's a big mistake that a lot of musicians make in that they start they try to start their careers before they've actually grinded it out, shedded it out, cut their teeth. And, um, they're trying to make a career happen when their music is just not ready and they really should be writing a hundred more songs. Yeah, you're right. What's the biggest mistake that you've made? Uh, I would say that was my biggest mistake. Um, early on in my music career, I, uh, my, my first album, um, I put out it and had, uh, it had 12 songs on it. Why did it have 12 songs in it? Because those are the only 12 songs that I had written. <laughs> and I'm a singer-songwriter. Uh, so songs are something that's are important to my career. That was a mistake. I should have written 100 songs and then picked the best 12 or 10 or something and put that out. 
Um, so I listened back to my first album. I'm like, man, that's not very good. I can't believe that I was really pushing and promoting this like I was. And I was, I was wondering why people weren't really paying attention. And I thought it was great at the time, but I didn't have anybody telling me that it wasn't great. And I also didn't have anyone telling me that, uh, I should go back to the drawing board and, and write a hundred more songs. I wish someone had told me that. I wish they'd be like, all right, these are really good. They're okay. But I think you can do better. Why don't you go write five more songs and come back to me. And then they, I come back and I'm like, great, go write five more songs and five more songs. Um, and so, you know, I think that was my biggest mistake early on and, and why it took me a long time, um, or a lot longer than it could have at kind of a developing a real career. Um, and I felt like, you know, it was, it was really working uphill a lot of the time was because I just, my music was not ready early on when I thought it was. Um, and so that took me years of kind of learning and, and figuring it out and getting used to of, and understanding that, oh, yeah, I guess uh, the music is the most important thing. And uh, it, even though I think it's ready and it's great, it may actually not be. Um, and so uh, that's something that, you know, I've learned the hard way. You know, that brings up a point, though. I've always felt there's no such thing as bad music from the standpoint that there's always an audience for something. Mm-hmm. And I always felt that there's music that I absolutely hate, and I cannot understand why there's an audience. There's rabid fans for various genres. I feel like that. Now, I understand that you can learn something from every genre and every hit regardless, but that being said, I don't enjoy a lot of music, and I can't understand the following that they get. <laughs> sure. So therein lies the problem in that there is an audience for everything, but the hardest thing is to find that audience. So what would you recommend? Sure. Okay. So, so to clarify, um, it's not that the music is that the artists are creating quote unquote bad music or that there's good music and that there's bad music. Cause that's all incredibly subjective. Um, I, that's why I like to say they're not ready yet and that the music is not ready. And what does that mean is, is because yes, the music that you, you may not care for and you can't understand why there's an audience, that may be true for the superstars of that genre, or that may be true for the garage bands of that genre or the acts that are just, you know, started last week, uh, because that just may not be your bag. That may not just be something that you dig and that's okay. Same with me. There's some kind of music that I can't really get into and that's okay. But for the fans that do get into that kind of music. So for instance, with, with my music early on, doing the singer songwriter thing. I was early on, I was doing kind of the acoustic pop thing. I knew exactly who my audience was. Um, I knew the similar artists that were in my genre and my field. And I'm like, okay, it's fans of those artists. Now, if fans of those artists who are all in my, my, uh, genre, if they're not getting into my music now, that's an issue. And if I can identify if I can identify the similar artists that are that are very similar in my realm, um, and these are the artists that who I'd like to tour with, who I'd like to, you know, there weren't Spotify playlists when I started, but you know, you could hear your your songs alongside their songs on a Spotify playlist or on a Pandora station or on the radio or whatever. Now, if the fans of those artists are not connecting, that's an issue. And so maybe your music is just not ready yet, in the sense that. You got to, you know, maybe it's your songs aren't quite there yet, meaning your songs could be better. They're used to a certain level of quality and your songs have not reached that threshold where they are affecting them in the same way that the other artists in your genre are affecting them. And so it's it's a it's a level of quality that maybe it has to do with your songs. Maybe it has to do with your technique, your voice, your in, your playing, your recording. Uh, oftentimes artists will send me their recordings and they'll say, you know, uh, no, like, I, I don't understand why this isn't working. And, um, and they like send me their business plan. I'm like, yeah, your business plan looks good. And I'll listen to your music, their music. I'm like, I understand why people aren't connecting. It's your recording quality is the, the mix is just not up to competitive standards. So maybe a fan doesn't know why they're not connecting with that song, but a trained ear knows why. And I listen to it. I'm like, I know why people aren't connecting with this. And like, who mixed it? Like, well, I just did. And I, I, I kind of did it a mix. I'm like, okay, well, you know, your, your mixing, um, expertise is not quite there yet. And maybe you can spend a thousand more hours, 10,000 more hours learning how to mix, 
Or you can pay a few hundred dollars a song and have a professional mix this, and then your mix will be up to professional standards and, and really up to the standards that the fans in this genre expect. And so that's like what you, I think a lot of artists need to identify um, and it's hard for a lot of artists, but in this era where it is the DIY world and, and that anyone can can write, record and mix, master and distribute from their bedroom, uh, there's no one really telling them that it's just not up to those competitive standards. No, I certainly agree with you. But the interesting point here is we all think that our music sounds like another artist. Mm-hmm. But frequently what happens is you get a fan that will say, you just sound like fill in the blank, which then you go, wow, I don't think that there's any similarity whatsoever. Sure. So, you know, you, you still have that where you go, okay, I don't hear it, but other people hear it. Sure. No, no, absolutely. And that, that's happened to me uh, throughout the course of my career. And, and, and it's it's awesome and flattering and, and very cool. And I then become a fan of another artist I'd never heard of. Um and, and that's cool. So, yes, I mean, there is um, there's a lot of different ways to uh, kind of seek out and find your fans and, and see who's going to get into your music. And, and that's why oftentimes um, I encourage artists to actually send out surveys uh, to some of their their fans and supporters. And that's one of the questions is, um, you know, who does this remind you of? Uh, who, what other, what other artists, um, do you think, uh, this reminds you of or this sounds like, or do you enjoy if you like this music in terms of, uh, learning who to target and then who to, uh, how to find your audience? Tell me about your book. Sure. Um, so the book, uh, how to make it in the new music business. Um, it is, uh, the second edition is actually coming out, uh, November 5th. Uh, we have the pre-order available right now, but it's, um, the book came out, uh, the first book, the first edition came out, uh, December, 2016. And, uh, the reason, honestly, the reason that I, I, I wrote the book was I, after writing hundreds of articles for Ari's take and for, um, all these other publications, um, I had musicians come to me and they were saying, you know, I have read all of your articles. Um, and I really enjoy it, but I, I'm looking for something to piece the dots together, to kind of connect the dots and to give me guidance step by step. And, uh, and they would ask me for book recommendations. Um, and I, I've read a few of the books out there. I'd like to say, you know, a lot of them, but it's, um, I, I hadn't, I hadn't read a book that, um, was super comprehensive, touching every aspect of what was happening in the new music business um, in a way that were telling these stories that I was hearing about and that also gave very practical step-by-step tips. And um, that was really kind of covering all the aspects of the industry that um, I was seeing happen that could be very helpful. And so I, I kind of felt I needed to write this this book um, that was uh, connecting the dots and that was kind of a continuation of the philosophies that I had been kind of developing, writing uh, Ari's take and also kind of telling those stories. So uh, the book uh, came out just about three years ago. Uh, It has been very uh, kindly adopted by uh, many music business uh, schools and programs around the world. Um, And uh, so they're, they're starting to teach the book in a lot of schools, which is awesome. And uh, yeah, and I, um, you know, it's it's just it's it's been really cool to kind of hear uh, from musicians and managers and people in the industry just saying kind of how it has really been helping them. I get kind of Instagram DMs every day from people uh, like holding the book or or uh, just saying kind of how the book has really affected them and, and helped them out. And so, um, yeah, I'm going to kind of keep updating the book every three years or so as the industry changes. And so that's uh, yeah. Second edition is is out. Very cool. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Yeah. Where do you think the business is going? What changes do you see on the horizon? Great question, Bob. You are, <laughs> um, um, it is, uh, what I've seen happen and what I I'm seeing starting to happen, um, more and more. And what I'm, I think is going to continue to happen is the industry is becoming more and more fragmented. Um, you can find, um, and, and like you said earlier, kind of there's uh, music for everyone and, and, 
and that there might be an, an audience um, for for everyone, um, for all the different kinds of music. I, I start to see this happening where there are artists that are building up very um, well, that are building up sizable enough audiences that can support their music for life that don't need to be um, they don't need to be superstars to have careers. So I, I've started to see this expansion of middle class musicians, this expansion of artists who are having uh, very good careers with kind of a, a select number of fans. You know, they have that. A thousand true fans uh, notion out there, but uh, some some variation of that of every scale, um, and we're starting to see that uh, on every level. And so the fragmentation of music, I think, is is happening more and more. Whereas before, it was kind of everyone was listening to the same music. You know, you had the sixties, seventies, eighties, nineties. Everyone kind of knew the same music. We all uh, we all knew the superstars and whatever genre it was. It was it was cut and dry based on the genre, and people kind of out and they all we all listen to the same music now it's so fragmented based on like you know spotify discover weekly is feeding it's unique to every single user and so your discover weekly is going to be different from mine based on what each of us have been listening to the previous week and so we're, we're discovering all of this new music and connecting with artists in ways that really um before it was like oh, you only had a select number of radio stations you could listen to to discover music or you know go to the clubs or or read the magazines or something like that but they were those were the gatekeepers and now um, we see this fragmentation and and what's super cool and what is actually super inspiring and exciting for me is when you start to see these independent artists who start off with a very niche audience because they're a niche band. And then they actually grow to extreme heights and they reach these levels that traditionally were held for major label artists and superstar artists. Like, for instance, um, there's this band Wolfpack. They're a funk band um, initially out of Michigan. Now they in L.A. and uh, they're spread around the country a bit. Um, they just sold out Madison Square Garden a couple weeks ago. Uh, and they don't have a manager. They don't have a record label. They literally do everything kind of all on their own. They have a booking agent, um, but no manager, no record label, and uh, they they built up their audience on the internet, online, um, primarily Facebook, Spotify, you know, YouTube, and they sold out Madison Square Garden, and that is unheard of for a, for a band without a manager and without a major label, and they've never been on, they're not on the radio or anything like that. And so we're starting to see that happen more and more. And with uh, and so I, I really see that that is going to start to happen more and more um, as as we move forward. You know, I'm so glad to hear you say that, Ari, because the notion that there's no longer a musical middle class is prevalent these days where mm-hmm. the, there's a lot of weeping and gnashing of teeth saying, oh, you, you know, you're either at one end of the spectrum or the other end and you can't make a living in the middle. Mm-hmm. But that's not the case at all. True. Absolutely. And I, I think that's that's a that's a big misconception with the general population. Um, and I think that that's something that I've been trying to a myth that I've been trying to dispel uh, in my book and then also in all my writings is um, that. And that's why I try to highlight all of these stories of middle class musicians, because I have seen it and you know, so it may not seem super glamorous to some people, for instance, like, you know, there's a couple friends of mine are are street performers and uh, they that's, been, you know, street performing has been around forever. And so it's like that's something that everyone can kind of understand when you're like, oh, they're street performers. I know what that is. It's like, yes. But do you realize uh, that they have kind of figured out how to make one hundred dollars an hour street performance? Like, whoa, wait, that, that's possible. And I'm like, yes, but let me take that a step further for you. That artist that you see perform on the the Santa Monica Pier right now, guess what? She currently has three thousand people watching her performance right now. I'm like, what do you? I see seven people in front of her. It's like, yes, but those three thousand people are on Periscope right now, and she is monetizing this with a PayPal.me button and monetized internally on on Periscope, and she is going to make probably a thousand dollars this evening. And you only see seven people in front of her, <laughs> and yeah. you're like, wait a minute, that's a thing like absolutely that's a thing and so it's kind of um 
I'm seeing more and more of these artists that are, are figuring out how to find their audience in unique ways, whether it's on Periscope or whether it's on Facebook or Instagram or Spotify or Patreon or wherever, and uh, and then monetize that audience and grow with them and and actually kind of have very successful careers in the sense that they're making livings and, and they're happy and they are middle-class musicians and they really love and enjoy what they're doing and they don't allow the industry to dictate what success means to them. They're like, well, hey, I'm doing what I love, I'm making a living, I'm happy, so I feel like I'm successful and I don't need an industry person saying because I haven't gotten 100 million streams on Spotify that I'm not successful. It's like, I think I am successful. I have a career, I have a fan base, I can pay my bills and I love what I do. Yeah, making a living is a new success, as they would say. Absolutely. I fully agree. You know, one of the concepts that I try to get, or perceptions, I should say, that I try to get people over is the notion of scale, where a lot of people still think that a million is a lot. And of course, it was in the days of physical product where you could really make some dough. But sure. now it's different. Now you're not even in the game until you get 50 million. And really, we're talking 100 million where then it begins to feel like a hit. And I'm trying to get that notion over every time I speak somewhere or write something, the fact that, look, you have to scale everything up because that's what we have to deal with these days, you know, online. Well, yes, in the sense that um, I think it's important to understand uh, the metrics that we're talking about. So a million, but a million what? And so if it's a million streams, then yes, absolutely, you know, that's uh, only going to pay $5,000 or so, or maybe even a bit less. Um, but if we're talking a million YouTube views, that's actually going to pay a lot less. But if we're talking a million uh, Patreon supporters that are, that are averaging $5 a, a backing, they're like, well, actually, that's gigantic. Yeah, yeah, right, <laughs> and, right. That's great. So, it, it really matters. We really have to, to say uh, the metric of what we're talking about here. Um, and, you know, a million tickets sold. Well, that's that's incredible. And that's, you know, that's that's uh, success for at every scale and at every level. And that's that's superstardom right there. So, um, yes, when we're looking at streams, sure, a million streams is not equivalent to a million sales. But I think there's also the, the idea that what we have to remember and this is why I kind of I fight back when people are like, well, you know, I got, you know, seven million streams. And I only got paid a thousand dollars or whatever. And that was like from, you know, Pandora or something like that. I'm like, OK, but we're in a new era. And uh, let's let's talk about Pandora. When you look at that, it's, it's radio, Internet radio. And it's like, OK, seven million sounds like a lot. And when you're like, wow, seven million sales and previously would earn me 70 million dollars. It's like, well, OK, but this is radio and it's not if you think about 7 million, um, that's, uh, 7 million ears, uh, 7 million people that have heard your song on radio and you break it down like that. It's like, okay, traditionally, what does that mean? Well, let's take, uh, let's take like KCRW in LA, uh, NPR affiliated radio station that gets 550,000 weekly listeners. So now we're looking at listeners. So that's a, just over half a million, uh, listeners. That means your song got played on KCRW 14 times over the course of four months. Like, oh, well, if you break it down like that, that's actually doesn't sound like that much. 14 total spins in like four months. And uh, you're like, well, that doesn't mean so. He's like, you really think you you deserve 70 million dollars because uh, your your song got played 14 times on, on a radio station over the course of four months? And be like, oh, no, of course not. It's like, well, that's how you have to read. That's how you have to think about what this really means when you're looking at streaming numbers and especially on like radio when they're like, Oh, Pandora, it's like, Oh, 7 million streams. I should be getting paid so much more. It's like, yeah, but it's radio. And it's like, it's just like no one expected to get paid 7 million or even $70 million on uh, when their song got played on the radio a couple times here and there. So it's, it's really, really understanding the metrics and, and uh, what each number actually means. Last question, Ari, thank you for your time. What's the best piece of business advice that maybe someone imparted to you or you learned along the way? I would say the, the number one thing, um, business advice, is to, uh, I touched on this a little bit earlier, but to set goals. Um, I think early on, um, I, I learned this the hard way. Um, 
is that I kind of, uh, I, I didn't really know, I didn't identify what my goals were, um, or what that even meant. I just like, I just want to have a successful music career. And, and, uh, I, I didn't identify actually what that meant. And so I tried a bunch of different things. They didn't work immediately. So I, I considered that not, uh, to be a, a path forward for me when in reality it was, I just didn't give it a fair, a fair shake. I, I didn't really know how to move forward effectively. And so once I learned and someone, um, kind of helped me with this and it's like, well, let's, let's set up some goals here. Like, what are your real goals? And then once we set up real goals, that's when, um, I realized like, oh, uh, this is a goal of mine. I'm going to reach that goal. And I would fail 30 different things I tried in reaching that goal. But the 31st thing I tried actually was the one that worked. And so then I was able to reach my goal on that. And sometimes it takes a lot of, it takes a lot of failure. It takes a lot of, you know, uh, trial and error to realize what works. And so I think, you know, the most important piece of advice that I've learned that now I try to share and pass along to other people is, is set concrete goals. And then it's going to give you direction in how you want to structure and focus your career. You can find out more about Ari at ariherstan.com, A-R-I-H-E-R-S-T-A-N-D.com. And you can read his informative music business posts on ariestake.com. That's ariestake, A-R-I-S-T-A-K-E, all one word, dot com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyoinnercircle.com. To listen to the episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, or you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyownercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts to your new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bye.